Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin by passing along a message that, uh, well, you may have already received it. Apparently, uh, someone is using an email and pretending to be James Fadiman. This person has asked people to contact him about being in a microdose study being run by John Hopkins. Now, none of this is true. It's not James Fadiman, and no such study is being done by John Hopkins. Hopefully, uh, you haven't responded to the links in that bogus email uh, if you received it. Well, uh, now today we're going to listen to the next-to-last part of a weekend workshop with Terrence McKenna. And to be completely honest with you, I think that I've probably overdone it here by playing so many of his talks. For what it's worth, I'm really excited about some of the new programs that I'll be podcasting this year. And uh, I think that there are already enough Terrence McKenna talks here in the salon to last us for a while. But uh, next week, I'll be playing the last talk in this workshop, and then we'll get on with some new material. But for today, we're going to listen to a bit more McKenna. As you listen to this talk, it will become clear to you that even though many of us didn't buy into Terence's uh, end of history and arrival of the Eschaton rap, well, he most certainly believed it himself back in 1991. And as you listen to him uh, talking about these things, it may be a good time to examine your own mind uh, in regards to the future. When Terence gave this talk some 25 years ago, he and many of his followers were quite sure that in some manner or other the world was going to go through a significant shift if not end altogether in 2012. Well, I think it's safe to say that that made-up emergency is now safely behind us. For myself, uh, I must admit that for a long time I've been hoping to live long enough to at least see the end of the American empire. For, uh, as you know, all empires eventually come to an end. But over the last few years, it's slowly dawned on me that this ugly empire isn't going to dissolve anytime soon. And if you subscribe to the idea that today's America isn't uh, at all unlike ancient Rome, well, then it would also be good for you to realize that it took Rome somewhere around 400 years after its uh, peak of power before it was completely gone. What I'm getting at here is that, in my opinion, we should be gearing ourselves and our families up for the long haul. What if the American empire outlasts everyone who is alive at this very moment? What if the only change we are going to experience in our lifetimes is more of the same? More police violence, more surveillance, more income disparity, more wars, more refugees? You get the idea. The question I think that uh, we should be asking ourselves is, how are we going to organize our own little local clans, you know, groups that can interact and survive during the centuries that it takes for this empire to come to an end? Think of occupied France during World War II. Maybe it's time that we begin to organize the resistance while we still can. But for now, hold that thought until I return after we first listen to what Terence has to say. So, uh, <laughs> with that cheerful little note, let's uh, join Terence on an afternoon in February of 1991 when this talk was uh, first given. 
At that time, the senior living member of the Bush-Clinton crime family had begun the first Gulf War. And uh, today, we're still in the midst of the second Gulf War that was begun by his screwhead son. And the world situation itself seems to be getting worse each day. If anything, uh, the world seems to be a bigger mess than it was when Terrence gave this talk. So, uh, what if things aren't that much different from what they are today, 25 years from now? In that case, where will you be? What will you be doing? But here's the kicker. If you do it right, 25 years from now, you and your friends can be enjoying more freedom and joy than most of the other people on the planet. Of course, uh, <laughs> I'll be dead by then, so you won't be able to tell me whether I'm wrong or not. Actually, uh, your life is much more in your hands than you may think sometimes, so why not take charge of it? And uh, I'll have more to say about that when I return. But first, uh, here's Terrence McKenna, who is going to begin by talking about throwing up, barfing, <laughs> but not because of all the bad news. Uh, this time, it's because of first ingesting a jungle brew called ayahuasca. The purging effect of ayahuasca. In South America, ayahuasca is called la purga, and for every person who hallucinates, there are probably five or six who just get sick and throw up. And this is culturally sanctioned. A lot of people, uh, Peruvians are just like everybody else, a lot of people are ambivalent about being swept away by titanic visions. So people will just sip it in these ayahuasca circles and then vomit. It's a tremendous uh, worm killer. And worms are a major source of mortality in the tropics. If you take ayahuasca once a week, intestinal parasites are history for you. Uh, so it does have uh, an effect on the health. There's also been research done at uh, SF Med to show that on Petri dishes, at any rate, uh, dilute ayahuasca kills the trypanosomal phase of the malarial organism. Well, if it is in some way even partially prophylactic for malaria, then this is another factor that would make it important for people to be taking it. They like the vomiting and stress it. When we went down there in 76, at first we didn't vomit. We would fight the vomiting, fight the nausea. And it's not overwhelming. Usually you can win it. And because I thought, you know, you should keep the whole dose down. But then a couple of times they dosed me heavily and I couldn't keep it down. And I discovered that the really strong waves of hallucination seemed to follow immediately upon the vomiting. And uh, I think it's probably very good to purge. Some of the people we, with were, we were with were very secular and... They would tell us all this stuff. You're not supposed to eat sugar. You're not supposed to have sex. No salt, no alcohol. And then we would just observe them completely pigging out on all of these things. And then we would say, well, what's the deal? And said, oh, yeah, well, that's why we take ayahuasca. Then we get rid of all this bad stuff. <laughs> so it was this kind of uh, thing. But I think it's very, uh, it's very cleansing. It's the only one of these... Uh, plant things, as I said, where there's not a net energy loss. You actually feel better the next day. And then what they say, and this is, you know, field work for the future, what they say is that taking ayahuasca is just the beginning of ayahuasca. 
and that the real thing is to keep a special diet and do it repeatedly over weeks. And I suspect from my own experiences down there that there is a way to tiptoe into something that if it's not Buddhahood, you could sell it on the Western market for Buddhahood. I mean, there is a way to chemically tiptoe into a place of humor, balance, equilibrium, caring, openness, anticipation of difficulty, uh, attention to other people's needs. I mean, it actually begins to happen. It's what I call appropriate activity. But I think what it is, is it's a kind, it's the dissolving of the ego. It's not something dramatic. It's just that you stop being an introspective, selfish, misbehaving, loutish, unfocused dweeb. And, you know, instead, but without anything dramatic happening, this sloughs away and underneath is this shining, caring, attention-giving person. Uh, I've been in these places, and God knows if it can trick me into enlightenment, (laughs) it will work for anybody because I, I don't think I have the credentials for the real thing. But that's what feeds this notion that I talked about a little this morning, that we're in a state of dysfunctional neurosis caused by the absence of these plants in our lives. If we had these plants in our lives, we would just feel better. And we, we're, like, uh, we're like rainforest creatures that have learned to adapt to a desert. We live in this desert, we survive in it, but constantly we're haunted by a memory of a golden age, a better time, when our sexual neuroses, our acquisitiveness, our fear of each other, all of these things were somehow not present. And the rationalists just sneer and say, oh, it's a golden age, it's been going on since Vico and the Bible and... and, But I don't think so. I think the myth of the fall into history is very real, that something bad has happened to us. And that's why we're dysfunctional, why we're unable to solve our problems. You know, it began with uh, uh, the rise of the ego, male dominance, property, possession, control of women by men, so forth and so on. That was all happening in the late nomadic pastoral phase. As soon as you add agriculture into the picture, you get overproduction. Then you have hoarding. Now you can really go to hell in a handbasket because you have more food than you can eat, but you must protect it from starving neighbors. And how you're going to then maintain a moral vision in a world where you fight people off who want your food supply. You know? And then, as I mentioned this morning, the phonetic alphabet and all these things. But I feel this very deeply. It's not a metaphor, this thing about how there has been a connection broken with the earth. All this yipping about the goddess is an effort to find this broken connection and plug it back in. It's when we find it, it's not going to be like another religion or a political reformation or something like that. It's much deeper than that. It's actually our lost 
other half. And, you know, there's a lot of talk goes on about gender politics in human society, men versus women and so forth and so on. But when you stand off and get a little perspective on that, we human beings, all of us, are so yang that if there is a tension between us and the feminine, it isn't within our species. It's between us and vegetable nature, the the uh, slow-moving planetary mantle of life that is the counterpoise to our own furious and frenzied and destructive uh, way of living out organic existence. So... Uh, And as soon as that connection was broken in Africa with the psychedelic religion, we began to go to hell in a handbasket. And the the connection was not broken uh, by an act of ill will or an act of intentionality. It was simply broken by a fluctuation of the climate. Uh, the, The mushrooms which had been available for thousands and thousands of years ceased to be available. Uh, The land became drier. The great mushroom festivals became seasonal. Uh, The boundary-dissolving, ego-dissolving, orgiastic festivals became less and less frequent, became centered on the solstices and the equinoxes. And as the mushrooms became scarcer and and cultural sophistication advanced, uh, there were experiments with preserving mushrooms. And the most successful, or perhaps unsuccessful, depending on how you view it, was to preserve them in honey. All graduates of Levi Strauss's thought will understand the complexity of honey. But what is important for our argument is that honey is itself capable of becoming a psychoactive substance through fermentation. But what you get then is uh, mead or honey beer. Well, the qualities of a drug like alcohol on a social menu are completely different from the impact of a psychedelic on a social menu. The psychedelic was in, in, was uh, promoting boundary-dissolving uh, sexual arousal, group sexual activity, and, and that sort of thing. The alcohol... Thing, empowers misconstruing of social cueing and uh, it, it does this weird thing. It lowers sensitivity to social boundaries at the same time that it empowers the personality to overreach those boundaries. I mean, how much uh, sexual imprinting on the part of women in our society, early sexual imprinting, goes on in the presence of intoxication by alcohol. I mean, it, it's just almost basic to the game, and even more so before the, most, the last 50 years or so. I mean, you can almost say of Western civilization, nobody got laid for a thousand years unless they were juiced because they were so uptight. I mean, alcohol was the way you got to that moment uh, in, in many cultures. Well, so this is just to, to show how unconsciously over centuries one plant ritual, one plant style can give way to a completely different plant style. 
And once the drying of the African continent had proceeded to the point where people were migrating out of Africa and settling in the ancient Middle East, then uh, you have all the institutions that we associate with the illness of our own society. You have male dominance, stratified social hierarchy, and a city-state defended by armed men, a class of armed men. Add on to that a couple of thousand years later, the phonetic alphabet, and it's no wonder that there's no sense at all of the living mystery of being in a dynamic balance with nature that we come out of. Anybody want to say anything on all of that? Somebody asked last night about how are we going to save the world and since this evening, I thought maybe we should talk about that a little bit because this evening I'll show you the time wave and it argues that we don't have to save the world because the world is uh, uh, going to disappear up its own nose in 22 years anyway. So uh, uh, there's not a whole lot of obligation on us to worry about it. We're simply the witnesses to the end game. But nevertheless, since that sounds to me like a long shot and I'm the inventor of the thing, uh, might be good to prepare a backup position just in case the emanization of the eschaton is uh, delayed somehow. Uh, You know, it's pretty hard to... uh, to figure out rationally where we're going from here. Does anyone have any idea where we're going from here? I mean, if you just extrapolate the trends in place, they lead to a world so science fiction-y that it's hard to imagine. And, You know, in some of these in some of these meetings, we've talked about how the the psychedelic viewpoint is always trying to meld things together to make a coincidencia positorum out of apparently dichotomous uh, positions. But there is this one issue where it's very hard to get it going both ways, and that is to try and figure out what our relationship to the earth is and then what we can do about it. Are we, is our destiny to become the stewards of the earth? Are we to become like ecology, tenders, gardeners on a planetary scale, honoring species diversity, detoxifying environments, and, uh, and promoting and uh, somehow uh, glorifying the steady state of ecology, or is that now impossible? And do we have to accept that you don't make an omelet without breaking eggs, and that the egg which we're about to break is an entire living planet, and that somehow in the name of the angel which wants to be born from the human soul, we are going to justify, about to witness the destruction of an entire planet for the birthing of some kind of hyper-technological space-faring species? 
Well, I always assumed that um, Apollonian and Titanic, as that latter possibility is, that that's what was actually going to happen, that there was too much momentum to do anything else, that we couldn't stop our breaking out from this planet and probably ruining it in the process. Uh, And the mushroom, you know, cheers this kind of stuff on and says... You know, this is what the planet was born for. This is what the species exists for. That, you know, there can be no sentimentality about carbon chemistry. Information is on the march to higher and higher dimensions of self-reflection. And we are strangers here on our way to a grander and odder tomorrow. In short, pure Gnosticism, pure Gnosticism. This universe is only a shell of our becoming. Uh, well, but then, and that was always my position because I assumed it was inevitable. Now I think that it's not inevitable, that it is in fact impossible and unreachable. We're not going anywhere. You can forget the triumphant march to the stars. You can forget all that Robert Heinlein stuff. Uh, We don't have it. We're not together enough. Monkeys too much. The kind of creature, the kind of planning, foresight, social coordination, and technical intelligence that is required to cross between the stars is out of our reach. And meantime, we are slipping into the quicksand of a toxified planet. Okay, well then, if it's not possible to leave the planet and to take the high road, then what's left? Are we... Can we get hold of this situation? Can we halt what's going on? Well, my style is to always try to go back to first principles, to get behind the problem, behind the problem, to try and boil everything down to some kind of mega problem that then maybe can be dealt with. And you've heard me say, or many of you have many times, that for my money, the problem is ego, that there is too much ego, that we cannot, uh, uh, the concept of ownership and of my right to two Mercedes and a split level and then everybody else's right and so forth, there isn't enough glass, metal and plastic in this planet to give everybody a Malibu style lifestyle. It just isn't going to happen. Well, so then what lies ahead? If we're not going to space, what lies ahead? And it looks to me like, uh, unless there's very careful social management, uh, great difficulties lie ahead. The species equivalent of what I've been calling ego is the inability to curb our drive to reproduce ourselves. As a species, this is our chauvinistic, uh, the center of our chauvinistic complex. We have put economic systems in place that have implicit in them the assumption of more and more and more and more people. And it's more and more and more people that are destroying the planet. 
because capitalism has this built-in assumption of you know ever-expanding uh, populations. This notion that there is some value in just endlessly producing people is impossible for me to understand. I mean, you would have to bring uh, you would have to bring the Catholic Church around uh, on on this issue. But I think that you know. It's like the greening of Buddhism or something like that. Uh, celibacy has always been marketed as a fine and mighty thing. I could never understand why. It just seemed to me a source of neurotic contortion. But we could define celibacy differently. We could define celibacy as uh, a commitment not to have children. That's a meaningful celibacy from society's point of view. You've actually done something for society, and you haven't pushed yourself out of shape. We don't need you to become a eunuch. We just need, you know, a little restraint. Well, then, the problem then with this rap, I think, is that it seems to be to go against one of our most cherished icons, which is the nuclear family. But I'm beginning to think that the nuclear family is actually a dinosaur and that it is far from being this wonderful institution, thousands of years old, which is our last link with anything meaningful and human. That's not what the nuclear family is. The nuclear family was dreamed up in 1600, right before the Thirty Years' War. And before that, everybody lived in extended families in multiple uh, uh, generational dwellings and women had great support in child rearing from their sisters and the wives of their brothers and so forth and so on. Uh, The modern nuclear family, and you know, I've got one, I know whereof I speak, is just a cauldron for neurosis. It makes impossible demands on everybody involved and, you know, the last census showed that something like three-quarters of American households are no longer organized that way. They have some other arrangement. I think that this uh, one-woman, one-child thing is, first of all, it rests upon women to implement it. Second of all, it seems to me it's tremendously empowering of women because the second child, to my observing mind, the second child is the way that male dominance is driven home in the modern marriage, and that a woman can be independent with one child. With two children, if she's not superhuman, she's going to have to cut a deal with the prevailing system of male dominance that... uh, is in place. Well, I just toss these ideas out there because I think it's interesting we never hear these things. Uh, it, It could be very easily done, and if we are not going to go to space, then I think we have to immediately plan a sane future. We cannot continue as we have. Now, you might object, and I'm sure many people would, that this one woman, one child thing is a tremendous interference in basic civil liberties. 
but you have to remember we're not comparing it to uh, heaven. We're comparing it to the future we're going to have if we don't get some of these problems under control. And the thing I like about this idea is people volunteer. It's self-organizing. We don't have the central committee on population and eugenics control saying who may have children and who may not. You appeal to people's higher self. Uh, I think that in our society presently, there's a lot of tension around the issue of having or not having children. And many people manage, if they don't have children, to define themselves as somehow incomplete. I think, I think this is a terrible mistake that the reflexes that served during the last glaciation you know, to propagate furiously as much as possible may not be the, the reflexes that really serve the community as we approach six billion people uh, on the planet. So I would like, instead of all this ballyhooing of the nuclear family that we get from uh, politicians, I would like the, uh, the independent choices of women to limit... Uh, to limit childbearing to be supported, and, and I think men could support that, society could support that, and that single area of activity would give us breathing space to solve all our other problems, because every other area where we make a start toward a solution, it's swept away by population growth. This is just unconscionable. It's intolerable. Speaking of unconscionable, as a former Catholic, I think uh, it behooves me to just stomp all over them. They have a population policy which I equate with the final solution for the Jews in Nazi Germany. I mean, how in the world you can support uh, continued uncontrolled birth in the third world when it shoves millions of people into poverty and death. Entire societies go on to the triage list and people are squawking that it's immoral to intervene in this situation. I just don't understand. This is to me, this is another bugaboo of mine, but this is to me a perfect example of what I call the poisonous nature of ideology. That, you know, will sink in a sea of slime if it's up to the Pope rather than just change your mind, you know? You speak ex cathedra. They said it one way, say it another way. Times change. God said times change, so here's the change. Uh, I mean, it's, it's absurd. And, uh, you know, this war was justified under the grounds that evil was out of control, in a part of the world. It was just running roughshod over whole nations and peoples. But this population policy thing is pushing many more people into death and degradation than the policies of the Ba'athist party in Iraq, believe me. So I think we need to think about uh, these things. Why psychedelics, why this is appropriate in a weekend like this is because the rest of society has this tremendous intellectual constipation, momentum, stodginess. 
they can't change their mind simply because they can't change their mind. Psychedelics are almost the precondition for clearing the table for a rational discussion of, you know, how can we create a sane and human future? How many people should be on this earth? And what mix? What should be the role of men and women toward each other, toward nature, toward the children, toward the future. Um, we, we need to um, have this kind of a global discussion. The calendar is a wind blowing at our backs because by great good fortune, we will live through a, a millennial year happens once every thousand years. It's a great opportunity for us to uh, make a shrewd public relations move and force an evaluation of where we've been and where do we want to go. Well, let's see. 954, King Canute unites England and invades Norway. We started there. We end now. George Bush invades Iraq. It looks like we haven't come very far uh, in a thousand years. Uh, the bombs are smarter. The politicians are as stupid as they ever were. Uh, but now we are a global society united by electronic media thinking as one mind. And it's very important, I think, in this last decade before the millennium to try and shed some of the ideology of the past and try and plot a way toward a sane world. I mean, we've talked about a number of things here. A technical fix, uh, visible language, which can be accomplished either through drugs and computers or a combination of the two. A social fix, one woman, one child. Uh, and, and these things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, there are other things that can be done, but I think this population thing is just very basic. And the debate that can be spawned around it, the education that can go on around talking about this population thing, will lead in to all of these other issues. Because what we're actually doing is we're coming to the end of our childhood and we are being given, metaphorically, the keys to the family car. And the family car is the planet. And so now they're saying, okay, go forth and drive and try to stay out of trouble. And uh, I don't think any area of discussion should be off limits. I think if pharmacological invention against human uh, bestiality and cloddishness is possible, then that should be entertained. If we can consciously limit our population, that should be entertained. And, you know, there's a slew of exotic possibilities. I mean, if everybody were the size of a piss ant, we could all live in Utah. Or, you know, some people think we're going to be downloaded into a black cube on the backside of the moon. Um, I don't know. I suspect it's going to be more mundane than that. And that instead of just waiting for the flying saucers to save us, we're, it's actually going to take an act of human self-discipline and, uh, and self-control. 
it looks like um, tragedy. There's a lot of blood and moaning and thrashing and agony. You would never dream that this was not only part of the plan, but the culmination of the plan. And, you know, we are birthing something here. The question is, are we birthing something that will honor the planet? Or is the planet the placenta of this birth? And when it's over with, the planet will be finished with and uh, it'll just be disposable somehow. I mean, that's a mind-boggling concept. But we don't know what's going on here. We do not know what is happening here. The rest of nature presents no problem. I mean, through the theory of molecular genetics and Darwinism and so forth, we understand nature on its surface pretty well. But when we come to ourselves, you know, we're a miracle and a mystery. The language, the art, the spiritual yearnings, uh, all this is very puzzling in the context of mindless nature. I don't take issue with the idea. It's obviously a great idea, but it, I can't imagine it having more adherence than the flat earth theory. Is this the idea kind of, about limiting population? Yeah, I can't imagine it ever catching on unless there was some other psychological mutation. I mean, only a handful of people would ever. And plus, it seems like it's a woman's solution, but men are making the laws about birth control and abortion. Well, you're saying that it would never catch on disturbs me because essentially you're saying I wasn't persuasive. Uh, So I'm dead in the water. If I can't persuade you, how am I going to persuade the matrons of Beverly Hills? Uh, They wouldn't even come here in the first place. You may persuade all of us, but we're already a tiny minority. Well, this brings up the subject of meme replication. Do you all know what a meme is? A meme is the smallest unit out of which ideas are made. In the same way that a gene is... Proteins are made by genes. Well, ideas are made by memes. And what I see myself doing here, I mean, very consciously, I'll reveal the game plan to you, is I'm a meme generator. And you are meme receivers and then your job is to generate the meme again and faithful copying is very important here just like in genetics because if you get it wrong it's not the same meme (laughs) (laughs) please pay attention (laughs) so I really believe I mean maybe this is the last shred of my idealism but I really do believe the best idea will win that the best idea will replicate and consume and digest and replicate its, uh, its competition, and it will win. And that this is why I'm very optimistic, because I love the environment of electronic media. As long as we can be allowed to meet like this and talk, we can win. Because, you know, it was William Blake who said a wonderful thing. He said, the truth cannot be told so as to be understood without being believed. Do you understand? In other words, if you can tell the truth to somebody and they understand you, 
belief is automatic. You don't even have to worry about that. What's important is that they understand you. And so uh, uh, what we're trying to do here is build understanding. I think... uh, what objection would people have to this? I mean, what is the the great rhetorical comeback to this idea? I've got a, oh, you've uh, got it? What is it? Um, well, just not to... One, this idea that's, that crosses a lot of uh, religious beliefs and political beliefs, but there's also just another thought about when you brought forth that idea of the solution of one woman, one child... Is there's the classic Gandhi statement of there's you know enough for the world's need but not enough for the world's greed, which gets back to where you originally started out with you know in this situation because of ego, nuclear family systems have been set up politically, economically, etc. So you know maybe if you move all those people from the back streets of India and move them all to Montana, we don't have to be this big. There seems to be you know the earth when seems to be self-generating to a, an extent of um, different you know, other thoughts need to be... So you would argue that we are... that steady state is sufficient, that we should not try to reduce population, but that we should just stay at a certain number and that the earth is sufficient to support that number. The problem is... Uh, a great leveling will have to take place to give a decent standard of living to most people and that leveling is going to come right out of this society because we're at the top of the pyramid. No, I think a different consciousness would be towards the usage. Towards matter. Well, but this gets close to being a virtual reality solution. You either are saying people should become Zen monks or... We're going to give them an electronic simulacrum of the world that will be very cheap to produce, but as satisfying as reality. I'm sure that an effort will be done to do this. In fact, both things are happening simultaneously. You know, Zen Buddhism is thriving, and virtual reality research is thriving too. I agree that it cuts across all kinds of religious and social taboos, but I think that if you look at each one of those taboos, you'll find them rooted in male dominance. And that what this is, is it's at a lightning stroke, you just end male dominance. Uh, Women with one child and a government uh, supporting that as a policy with subsidies in a stroke would liberate women from much of the machinery of their oppressive position in society. So, um, and then people say, well, but what about people who want more than one children, one child? Well, good Lord, the world is adrift in orphans, awash in orphans. And then if you say, well, but I want my child, well, then we're right, but that's what we're saying no to is this genetic ego chauvinism I mean once you can have your one child but but just the notion that your genes are to be spread like chaff to the wind is it's not the idea it's how do you how would people even listen to it it's so against all their conditioning not just no, I think it's actually, isn't it happening? Aren't yeah, yeah. there... Checking in China. China is, it's mandatory. You get penalized if you have more than one child. But that's not what we want. We don't want that. But I get the feeling that there are thousands of women with one child around. 
who have made a decision to live without a permanent man in their life or perhaps with a permanent man in their life but they have made the decision that in order to have a career a degree of independence a degree of financial comfort that they wouldn't have otherwise I think this is happening on a on an undetected and large scale it's just that we have not given it any support but we should we should say these are the, these women are the heroes of the future these are the people who are creating the new paradigm it's not being created in seminars at Esalen it's creating as people actually create new kinds of lives in order to deal with the world as they find it in Japan just recently there's a big controversy that's been raging for the last few months about this issue and they're trying to uh, um, get the women there to only have one child and they're offering them cash incentives I mean granted the cash incentives in, in the light of their economy are quite minimal but you know again it's not it's not self expression but uh... well now it's interesting I'd like to know more about this because first of all Japan is one of the most child worshipping societies in the world second of all it's one of the most consumer intense societies in the world so if the chi- if the Japanese government is encouraging a one woman one child policy there should be immediate relief and release of resources somewhere else in the world because probably the Japanese child also is using 800 times as much resources well I'm all for this I think it should be debated if there's if I've made a serious error if somebody can run the demographic modeling I'd like to know how fast will it fall unlike you who thinks it couldn't be sold I'm already grappling with the problem of how would you persuade people to stop it as they observed decade over decade over decade themselves get richer better taken care of their vast estates become ever more vast the cost of art falling the cost of everything falling how would you say okay folks we've been at this 125 years now everybody go back to having as many children as they want I think it would be that this would be the real problem is to shut it off once you demonstrated what a good thing it is yeah well we, we've already seen uh, some level of this in the you know the baby boom generation deferring uh, uh, having children so we've had a right now at a 20 year old age we have a decline in, that's right in the population that's kicking to a new uh, boom behind that, but uh, the implications are the incredible value that would be placed on the children that you did have. Oh, incredible value. These children would have an education and they would inherit a sane, detoxified, non-violent... I mean, it's what we want. And... I'm, I'm amazed that the mushroom could get it together in one sentence. I mean, you go, here's a question. How do you save the world? Says, you know, one woman, one child. And then you go back and you run the city. You say, my God, this is it. All we have to do is sell it. But now, why should it be hard to sell? I think a lot of people have children because they think they should. And it makes them poorer. 
it scatters their energy and uh, not not everyone finds it you know a tremendously rewarding experience you can tell that by the statistics on child abuse abandonment and that sort of thing i think we should see it not as a, a biological function that we're all likely to participate in in our lives but the highest calling to which a human being can aspire and the generation of new people for the next twist of the spiral. Yeah, Billy. Well, I think he wanted to include with that a restructuring of the family in order that uh, children could have co-children because that's a, a big thing for having more than one children. A big motivation is to provide a growth-made, play-made. The, the archaic model is the longhouse or the extended family. And I think that, you know, what the automobile did to the nuclear family, which was, first of all, it made it possible, but it's a completely maladaptive style. Men become breadwinners. They have offices far from the home. They are ground down by a set of concerns that their wife and children never see. The woman is essentially a hearth slave chained to the tasks of the house and to the idiot cycle of consuming. Uh, The children have too tight an interaction with each other, not a tight enough interaction with each other. There are not multiple role models in the form of uncles, cousins, aunts, and so forth, coming and going. I mean, in an Amazonian family, in an Amazonian tribe, if you have a hassle with your family... You just take down your hammock and move three posts down to your uncle's family. And it's a big deal. You've moved out. But it's only from me to Cheryl, you know. But it's a statement about space and and commitment. And then if you piss on your uncle, he'll throw you out. And then you have to go somewhere else. And children move and they choose their role models. And... uh, it's all, we really have to get back to being, to feeling human, to feeling good about ourselves. I am in total agreement with you, but what I am feeling increasingly pessimistic about is that we, and I use the term collectively, are ever going to be able to get that kind of unity and agreement behind anything. I don't see anything to indicate that we're moving in that direction, and it absolutely breaks my heart. But yes, if we got behind just that one idea, of course it would transform the world. But I, there are a lot of other ideas, too. But it just seems to me that we, again, the ego is driving the machine. And unless there's that radical shift in consciousness on this large level, I just don't see it happening. And I feel exceedingly discouraged by that. Well, what I liked, as I said, about this idea was, number one, it didn't depend on men. That eliminates half of everybody so that we've a limit now it's critically dependent on half of the human race and then what I really like about it is that the women that it is least important to convert are the women that it would be hardest to convert in other words it's going to be hard it's least important to convert the women of India the women of Bangladesh, because their children aren't impacting on resources anyway. So it should be easiest to reach the college-educated, high-tech, independently-minded, liberal, financially comfortable uh, American or European woman. 
Well, if that's who we have to convince, then I feel hope. I feel that that's a, a, a constituency that, from which I would expect fair treatment, a decent hearing, and so forth. Yeah, I'm just working this out over the past ten days, so I'm very interested in feedback. It's not really my bailiwick, but this how do we save the world thing comes up all the time. And many people in these workshops ask me the question, what can I personally do? And I never had, I just had some namby-pamby answer, you should be aware, uh, oh God, I don't know. Well, here's something you can do. Limit your reproductive expression to one child. You are having, this is the most politically high-impact act you will ever have. I mean, the people on the other side of the planet that you will never meet will thank you if they but could. Men should support women in this choice. Is it celibacy or, or sterilization? What, what choice is it that women are making? Do we have the men have a say in it? You mean after the first child, what happens? Yeah. Well, I think that there are many options, so they should all be exercised. We're not talking about mass sterilization here. I have two children. Uh, as soon as I had my second child, I had a vasectomy. It just seemed to me like the socially responsible thing to do. I will not stand up in front of a group of people and, and advocate vasectomy because I think I was lied to about what it's like. <laughs> I mean, they said, oh, it's a little procedure, a little procedure. Snip, snip, he said. Hey, <clears throat> I won't give you the gory details, but... Uh, uh, but it's certainly politically a defensible thing. I think this is where, if you're serious about making a political impact, uh, this is where we can all have a tremendous impact. And it's on us, because our children are such rapacious users of the world and its resources, and somehow we have to recognize that. Cut down the numbers, then we can still use the same. Power. I see what you're saying. No, and no. Solar is is screwed. No, I'm all I'm suggesting here is that this would buy us breathing time. I'm not to saying some more calculator to, to to figure out how we're going to solve the very problems you're talking about. I'm not suggesting we go back to the 17th century and live on vast estates and burn coal and wood because there are only half a billion of us on Earth. No, I think that if we drop the po- if we take off this population pressure, then there will be breathing time to implement the other solutions that you're talking about, a solar economy, a hydrogen economy run on hydrogen split from seawater. Uh, there are a number of these kinds of things. And also we have to correct the gaseous imbalance of the atmosphere. This billion people that I'm talking about will be kept fully employed uh, as combination archaeologists and waste cleanup uh, artists because there will be centuries of detoxifying and cleaning up the earth to be done. Well, I think what uh, you're skirting around here is the possibility that uh, the the genetic plan has a whole other scenario going and that we're actually... um, Agents of a grander plan that's being acted through us, and that's where the, the, the theme of uh, leaving the planet comes around again and again. Like Tim Leary talks about often, uh, 
gene, the, the, the uh, plan of the gene is to um, fill up niches with new species and then generate, and then the, the pressure generated by overcrowding spawns the, the creative intelligent leap to the next, whatever the next frontier is. And that as a human species, we've been filling up the ecological niche of basically the planet's surface, really, because we're so adaptable. Well, see, the problem with that from my point of view is that, and the problem with all these forced evolution scenarios is they have no mercy on the individual. I mean, in this nice phrase, filling up the niche... What are we talking about? 10 billion people? 20 billion people? How hellish does it have to get on this planet before governments dedicate every penny they've got to building spaceships to escape? I mean, it could get that bad, but I would prefer not to be crisis-driven. You know, not to always be moving to the next phase because the bridge behind us is on fire. Give credence to the fact that there's a, an underlying, uh, possibly an underlying scenario that we have to come make an agreement with, or uh, come to I, I think with. I think ultimately we'll be a spacefaring species, but I think we have to prove our worthiness for that. And the way you prove your worthiness is by not wrecking your home planet. You can't join the galactic club if you wreck your home planet. They withdraw your membership application. So uh, in order to save our planet, we're going to have to become excellent planners, able to coordinate diverse points of view, able to honor uh, diverse points of view, all the things we haven't yet learned to do. And then... When we've balanced our accounts on this planet, we'll be able to go out into the universe. I really wouldn't want us to go any other way. I mean, I don't like the scum to the stars scenario that, you know, we will pillage, rape, and burn our way to our tourists the same way we did to Fort Laramie or something. Uh, I, I, I don't like that. I think that we, we have to pass certain tests before we can enter the galactic club. Yeah, there is also, you know, there is a realm of art. I mean, we will, uh, through virtual reality and things like that, we want to both save the earth and live in this titanic dimension where our engineering dreams can be unfolded against black space. And it's the tension between these two things, the garden planet we come from and the truly titanic dreams that are being dreamed even now, you know. I mean, of ships the size of Manitoba that would carry a billion people to the stars, stuff like that. I mean, it isn't here now, but on the other hand, uh, nothing that is here now was here even a hundred years ago. Well, see, there was a, there, you get a fair amount of agreement when you talk about saving the world and you talk about what we should stop. We should stop population, stop pollution, stop nuclear proliferation. Where it gets tricky is when you move into the area of what could be done, not turning switches off but turning switches on. And then it becomes really complicated to know exactly what to do. Uh, for instance, you know, there's a CO2 debt in the atmosphere. 
that is the accumulation of several centuries of fairly intense industrial activity. Well, recently it's been proposed that for cheap, for like $25 million, the cost of a bad movie, you could, uh, you could divert iron ore tankers from the Great Lakes uh, to the South Pacific and pelletize hematite ore and dump it into the sea in the South Atlantic to create a temporary algal bloom that would, uh, the theory is, this huge algal bloom would take place, there would be a massive release of oxygen into the atmosphere, and then the algal bloom would consume the hematite and the algae would die, and there would be a net gain of 3% oxygen in the planetary atmosphere. it's this big stuff we're talking, you know, how right or wrong can you be? Is this the kind of fiddling we should be getting into? And then the answer is, well, it depends on how bad you think things are. Obviously, we're not going to stand by and do nothing while the planet burns up. But, you know, and there are other plans like this. There are plans to uh, aerosol spray powdered lime into the atmosphere to restore the acid imbalance in lakes. And they're talking about doing this on a scale of the northern hemisphere. You know, millions of tons of lime dust dropped at high altitude and then allowed to aerosol disperse. But, um, you know, they're afraid that there might be a return of sunlight to space that would cause a climatological depression. So when you're able to make big corrective changes, you're able to make big boo-boos. And uh, these are vast multinational undertakings which impact every country and population on the planet. So, you know, what kind of administrative machinery is to be put in place to deal with this kind of thing? Well, these are all challenges to human organization and to mind and to... uh, because we're going to have to design from the ground up, redesign an entire global system, I think psychedelics as a catalyst to the design process should have an obvious role. I mean, we really we have an opportunity to remake the world almost from scratch if we will but use the tools that we have to do it, the tools that allow us to reach people, to educate people, uh, uh, the computer power that we have to simulate various solutions before we commit to them. Uh, The future is a future of planning. The mushroom said to me once, very emphatically, it said, uh, if you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. Or the implication is some other plan. And we see that happening. It is easier to move around than you think. I mean, this is both a cause for cynicism and hope. As an example of this, I had a funny thing happen when I was coming down here. I don't own a TV. I I own TVs, but I don't own antennas. I watch tape, but I never watch broadcast TV, so I don't know anything about it. So I'm reading the entertainment page of the paper, and it says uh, that uh, Twin Peaks is cancelled, and I'm puzzled, isn't this? 
the most phenomenally successful television program in history? Isn't this the show which mobilized hundreds of millions of people so they had to be home in time to see it uh, night after night? And I read through this thing. It's in the business section, actually, not in... And I read through this, and it says uh, it's cancelled, it's finished. Uh, uh, The public relations ploy of focusing audience attention on the question of who killed Laura Palmer completely backfired. The whole thing is a burnt-out case. It wasn't the most creative television show in history. It was junk. A lot of money was spent to make people think it's wonderful, and now the money has stopped being spent, and it ain't wonderful anymore. This is an example of the power of public relations. That's all. If you will give me... $10 $10 million, uh, we can sell this idea to enough people to make an impact on the history of the planet. You could sell any idea for $10 million. Media costs money. Ideas are driven by the same market economy that drives everything else. I mean, it's an obscene fact. But no idea is sold without hype because the arena of the sale of ideas is an arena of hype. I mean, it's, it's all packaging and that sort of thing. This is a very cynical thing. I realized this watching the peace demonstrations after the war first broke out, because I come out of that. I was in the Vietnam Day Committee and all that stuff back in Berkeley. So then here's the CNN broadcast of the peace demonstration and, and here's some guy, his Adam's apple moving four inches up and down as he speaks, screaming, What do you want? Peace! When do you want it? No! It's just, you know, it's a total turn-off image. They must have been hired by the government to do this. Don't they, can't they get some decent public relations? Don't they understand public relations? It's how you... Well, then it's insidious. Then you have agent provocateurs, essentially, which was always the problem in the 60s. We looked so bad because the cops always led us. Well, the way money is spent in this country is really obscene. There was a breakdown of weapons in the paper about a week ago in an effort so that the ordinary person in the street could understand what's going on. The stealth fighter, is it the the, uh, F-18? The F-18A sitting there on the runway costs $110 million. You know what you can buy if you have $110 million on the civilian market? You can buy the Trump princess. That's what the Trump princess costs. Well, now we think of Trump as just the exemplar of obscene wealth. I mean, this guy, what a pig, all this money. All of his money buys him one F-18A. We build these things by the dozens, dream of selling them by the hundreds. So, you know, is Donald Trump a pig? What about their levels and levels? Some people make an easy target. Uh, the amount of money being spent on armament as opposed to the amount of money being spent on anything else, the cure of disease, housing, education, you name it, is totally uh, schizophrenically skewed. And what is the 
but see, I think that ideas are permeable. They do, they do leak out. All you have to do is articulate them. That's why I don't want to lead a particular crusade. I don't want to found the committee for one woman, one child, because I figure like my position is just to lay this stuff out there, and then if it's heard, uh, that's how it tests. I mean, there is an environmental, uh, an environment of natural selection for ideas as well, and uh, it's just a matter of putting these things out there. I had never heard, it's like a suppressed statistic, I had never heard the statistic about an American child using 600 to 800 times the resources of an Indian child. I mean, they do not tell you that because that's all you need to know to figure out, to reach a whole bunch of conclusions just on your little old own without anybody leading you by the nose. So that that fact is kept in abeyance. And we're told, oh, if only all these little brown people would stop breeding like flies, then we, they're, they're not the problem. And to break out of it is indeed a challenge. And it does take unity, and that's a challenge. Well, and then if you're lazy, you just wait. And it also has internal contradictions, which will destroy it. If, you, if you're the patient type, you can just wait for the internal contradictions to destroy it. The problem is now we seem to be up against a kind of a planetary deadline. There's, it, we don't have centuries to let these things work out. So a certain urgency uh, creeps in. This is why anything which catalyzes consciousness, anything which accelerates the production of ideas in the body politic uh, has to be taken seriously. And when you look back at the 1960s, that's what characterized that decade was a whole bunch of ideas came out with the psychedelics. And the psychedelics were repressed and, and pushed off stage. But the ideas remained to shape our society. I mean, uh, feminism, uh, uh, racial tolerance, uh, the idea of feeling concern for people far removed from you in space and time, the notion of brotherhood, basically, of global community. All that began then and has bedeviled them ever since. And that's the real legacy of that time. Now, uh, it just has to be uh, refocused. The, the problems are coming home to roost. It's not that abstract anymore. I mean, this convulsion over petroleum is going to haunt us for years. And uh, uh, I think that even in the government chancelleries and corporate boardrooms of this world, there's a fair amount of alarm. There's a fair sense that it's out of control. People are willing to talk Turkey within their small private circles. Who is in charge? You know, where, where are we pointing and where do we want to go? And it's a complicated situation. Are the corporate multinationals black hats, white hats, gray hats, or all of the above? What, what are we doing with the nation-state? Is it on its way out? Uh, just, it's a tremendous moment for opportunity. 
and there will be more chaos. This is just the beginning. The whole rest of this century is about the surfacing of the contradictions in the Renaissance structure of society that we've been working out. It won't function for an electronic population of six or seven billion people. And we're meeting this challenge moment by moment. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As Terence just said, this convulsion over petroleum is going to haunt us for years. However, uh, he then went on to say, but we're meeting this challenge moment by moment. Now, while I wasn't very clear in my introduction to this talk, what I hope today's program will be leading us to is a further discussion of some of the topics that were touched on by Terence just now. You see, while I truly believe that we have at least another century with the owners of the American empire continuing to uh, have their way with the world, I also believe that deep inside this troubled world there are ways for us locals to not only survive the empire, but to actually thrive while Rome burns all around us. Now, something that Terence also said was, as long as we can meet like this and talk, we can win. And he said that in conjunction with his comments about who is actually in charge and is there anything that we can do about our situation. Well, what we can do, at least for the time being, is to get together in all kinds of different ways and talk. During the course of this year, I hope to uh, be able to Skype into several festivals and talk with the participants there about ways in which we can thrive while the empire washes over us locals. And as I've said before, I'd be happy to Skype into your local meetings as well. What is important, uh, I believe, is to keep the dialogues going that begin at festivals, conferences, and other gatherings of psychedelically oriented friends. And for another little stake in that ground, over on our forums I've begun a thread titled The Empire is Falling Apart. And uh, already there have been uh, eight or ten different people who have uh, begun the conversation. Soon I'll be adding a few subsections to this thread, and I hope that we'll be able to figure out a few ways to help us all survive and to actually thrive during the dark times that we seem to have entered. And this isn't all about alternative currency, non-corporate sources of work, and alternative living arrangements. I hope that we can also come up with uh, new ways to have fun-filled days and nights uh, and close to home without uh, first becoming the target of the screwheads who own this country. So who's in charge? Well, we are. And I think that there are a lot of positive things that we can be doing other than buying into the widespread fear that our governments are creating so as to tighten their grip on we the people. Let's face it. If there is one single group of people who already know how to live in a tightly screwed down police state, it's the psychedelic community. We've been living within our own set of rules ever since this insane war on drugs first began. So, if you get a chance, why don't you uh, come over to the forums and add your two cents to the conversation. Now, I'd be remiss, I think, after a lecture by Terence in which he promoted his one-woman-one-child idea, if I didn't mention a woman who, to me, is a true hero. Now, if you're new to the salon, uh, then I should let you know what I've said on several occasions in the past. 
One of the main reasons that I'm doing these podcasts is to leave a little bit of myself online where my grandchildren can find it, should they uh, ever want to know a little about one of their ancestors. So this is just a personal note to them. The woman that I'm talking about is named Rindy, and she is the real Rindy who I fictionalized in the Genesis generation. I won't go into her full story, but she had an exceptionally difficult life before we met. However, during the time when her daughter was in middle school and high school, I lived with uh, her and her daughter, and so I came to understand how unbelievably difficult it is to be a single mother. It was Rindy, by the way, who broke me out of my conservative shell and turned me into the radical that I am today. We produced over a hundred television programs together, and uh, some of the series were titled Big Brother's Latest Lies, Freedom Now, and Reality Check. (laughs) She also got me involved in the uh, Vietnam Prisoner of War movement, and uh, we protested together up and down the East Coast. Without all that I learned from Rindy about being tough and standing up for what you believe in, I would uh, probably still be a mild-mannered cubicle worker. And uh, she led by example the example that only a single mother can provide sometimes. Rindy and I haven't seen one another for many years now, and we are both grandparents now. But we stay in touch, and I'm very pleased to say that she is still the shining star who cracked my conservative shell and had an awful lot to do with making me the person I am today. Now, as we part, I want to call to mind a man who died the other day and who is going to be missed by millions. I'm talking, of course, about David Bowie. Over the years, his music and his characters have played a part in many of our lives. Now, back in the early 1970s, when I was practicing law in Houston, Texas, one of the songs that was frequently played at our weekend Navy Reserve meetings was Ground Control to Major Tom. (laughs) Now, what, what seems really funny to me now is that we were so square and straight back then that we thought the song was about a real astronaut. (laughs) Tripping wasn't even in our vocabulary back then in that uh, straight-laced place called Houston, Texas. At the time, I was uh, living in a small town that was only 10 miles from the Houston Space Center, and one of the officers in our reserve unit was actually the person in charge of ground communications for the whole space program. And uh, in our eyes, he was ground control. Now, uh, fast forward about 15 years or so, to the time when I was living in Dallas and selling ecstasy and had at long last begun using psychedelics. Needless to say, the song took on an entirely new meaning for me, (laughs) as it has for countless psychonauts. So I thought that in the memory of David Bowie today, we should let Major Tom end this podcast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Seven Six, five, four, three, two, one, lift off.
Yeah. 